Robin, when you came to LA, what was the first role that you booked and where were you in your life? Oh, well, uh, the first job that I ever got when I came to Los Angeles was on a television series with Lloyd Bridges. Do you remember who Lloyd Bridges is? He was on Sea Hunt. And, um, and I used to watch him as a little girl. And I, I got it. First of all, I arrived in Los Angeles with $45 in cash, a proof sheet with headshots, and a free place to stay. And, I, uh, and the girl that I was staying with, her family was in the fine art business. And uh, I needed, you know, she was wonderful and I loved living with her, but I needed to be around people who were in the show business. So I had been going to a school, found a job, uh, or said to my teacher, I'm going to find a place in Hollywood to live because my girlfriend lived in Echo Park, got a job, I mean, got found a place with one of his other students, then got this job at this hamburger stand, then moved from the hamburger stand up to this place called Simply Blues, which is still, I mean, the, building, the building's still there, it's right at the corner of Sunset and Vine, and I had gotten a job as a cocktail waitress. And um, so I had, back then, um, uh, I, you didn't have cell phones and texting and all of that. You had an answering service or your home phone. And so I had gotten a lot of guys would ask for my phone number and, and sometimes I would give them my phone number and sometimes I would give them my answering service number. Just, I wasn't, you know, I just didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings and it seemed much easier than saying no. And um, so uh, I had gotten a call on my answering service from this man named Roe Wallerstein and I thought maybe he was one of those fellas, you know? So I didn't, and the third time he called, he said, Robin, this is uh, Roe Wallerstein. I'm over here at Warner Brothers. Larry, the guy you used to work for at the hamburger stand, handed out your picture in the commissary, and I have an audition for you. If you don't call me back, the train is going to have left the station. Well, I am over the moon, as you can imagine. And I go to my boss, and I've just, uh, you know, I've just started my shift, and I say, listen, the, um, I have this audition, it's right over the hill at Warner Brothers, you know, Sunset and Vine, Warner Brothers right over here. I can go up Highland, I'll be back before the crowd even starts. And he looks at me and he says, if you leave, you don't got a job. And I looked at him for one unbelieving moment, untied my apron and said, well, I didn't come here to be a waitress. I've got to give this a try, you know. And, uh, and off I went. And the part was so small that I actually had to read another character's lines because my character didn't have that many lines, but it was a week's work and it was on a national television show and it got me my SAG card and it was great. And the thing that was so wonderful about it was that it was, I had to take, it was a risk because I, I don't think I, I don't even know if I got, I think I didn't lose that job. I oh. think they, I did go back a little bit later and um, for a little while, but, uh, you know, I had to take, I had to bet on me. And anybody who comes to Hollywood is betting on themselves. You know, I didn't want to be afraid. I didn't want to think, well, I can get another job as a waitress, certainly. I did think that, that even if I lose this job and don't get that job, I'm going to be fine because I can always get a job somewhere that pays the rent, so. And how long had you been here? I arrived on tax day, April 15th, very close to the time that we're doing this interview. Um, and uh, let's see, and I got my first job in August. Oh, wow, okay. I landed an agent. Uh, by May or June, I had an agent. And by August, I had my first job. Wow. 
Wow, that's that. I mean, that's really quick. Yeah. A lot of people stay here a lot longer. And I just want to get back to the whole uh, thought about you came here not to be a waitress or receptionist or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. Right. You know, I, I hear from a lot of actors that they, they need these jobs, obviously, because first of all, it's expensive too to be in acting, to headshots and yeah. all these things. If, any advice for someone that is in a similar position? Because sure, this part-time job is just to, to sustain them, but you, you took that risk. You felt that, you know what, this, you know, even though you'd only been here a few months. Any advice for people? in that same kind of... Bet on yourself. If you have the chutzpah to come to Hollywood, which is one of the most unforgiving cities and show business, which is one of the most unforgiving industries that exists, and you're brave enough to come to Hollywood, then keep that courage up. Believe in yourself. And waitressing jobs, bartending jobs, those are the best jobs to get because they ha are the maximum financial return for the minimum responsibility. You know, the reason I used to live in the Bay Area, like you, <laughs> and um, one of the things that was the driving force that had me move to Los Angeles was I was working in a bar at the end of Sunnyvale, Saratoga Road called Andy Capps, and, and the business was taking off, it was doing really well, and um, I was doing theater around in Palo Alto, and, um, and the, people who owned the bar offered me a small percentage of the bar, which meant that I would have to, if I took that, then I would have to be responsible and do what, you know, I'm taking the job and I can't go off and just do what I want. So I thought this was my first offer of, of a really straight job that had longevity to it, was, you know, a percentage of the bar or betting on myself and coming to Hollywood with $45 in a proof sheet. And I chose that because it was, it was what I wanted to do. If you have a dream or a vision of what it is that you can or should be doing, you have to follow it. You have to, because the chief thing you want to avoid at any point in your life is regret. You have to try it. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Right. Yeah, and I think too, anybody who's who's been around and looking for those jobs during the recession realizes that nowadays, I mean, you know, it was during the recession. It seemed like you couldn't get a minimum wage job. You you were in a pool. You had to go on numerous interviews. You know. So I think people are so skittish nowadays, and I don't blame them. I get no, it I, because it's scary. Yes, it can you be know. scary, but. The, Scarier than looking for a job is putting, setting your cap for a career in Hollywood. This is hard. This is a very challenging thing. And as I said, if you have the nerve to come here, if you have the, even a modicum of belief in your ability to make it in any facet, behind the camera, in front of the camera, whatever it may be, um, you have to pursue it. You have to. I think even scarier is, is regret. Yes. And, and I think some people, you know, they, they don't, they're not there yet. So they don't see that time does fly by oh. and then, and, and regret is actually the scariest thing. Yes, not being able to pay your rent is very scary, yeah. but regret is, is also scary. So, well, the, the other thing is don't come here and rent a $3,000 a month apartment, you know, come here and no matter how old you are, get a roommate, take a studio, 
you know, live in a small place because all of your energy has to go towards what it is you're pursuing. And, um, and so you have to be sensible about it, you know, I mean, you can't go mad with, with car. this is one thing that, always, that I thought was amazing when I moved to Hollywood. Everybody spent all this money on a car because the car was, you know, you pull up to the valet and the car is, you know, tells them who you are. Well, you're just this far away from being a valet yourself most of the time as, a, right. as an actor, you know, I right. mean, you might have to take a job like that. Yeah. So, be smart about what it is, where you set yourself up, how you set yourself up, your expectations. Count, bank on yourself, not the purse you carry or the car you drive. You know, believe in yourself. Robin, I think you said that you never lived anywhere for more than a few years growing up. And I'm wondering, I know your, your parents are also artists or actors, but how just that experience of moving around shaped you? Did you have to become a chameleon? And how did it make you maybe more confident, less confident, whatever it was? What did it do? I think moving so frequently really helped me become more confident because I, I got to sh shape who it is I wanted to be. If I lived somewhere and, and you know, kids can be very cruel, and, and, but if people said, oh, she talks too much, or oh, she's this, or oh, she's that, in a, another year or two, I was going to be living somewhere else and I could dial that down, you know? And so I listened to the, the, I listened to what people's perception of me was. I didn't become anything other than what I wanted to be and what I believed was the best person I could be, you know? Um, I didn't go and, you know, try to keep up with the popular girls in school or buy the latest shoes or do the latest purse when you're 14. I mean, for God's sake, really. It's your parents buying it anyway. It doesn't say who you are. It just says what they can afford. But, um, but I, it allowed me to, to shape myself. I wouldn't say be a chameleon because to me, that means you become, you know, where you are at that moment. And I didn't do that. I was who I was, where I was at any given moment, but who I was was changed over the years by, by paying attention and, and seeing other people's behavior and not wanting to be that. Seeing how other people's behavior could hurt others and why would they do that? So that's not a, a quality to adopt. And it also, I think, made it really, um, easy for me as, a, as an actor because I got to observe all kinds of people from all walks of life and um, from all over the country and all over the world actually because when I was 17 I moved to Europe for a while and um, for six months and so it, you just it allowed me to see the world in a way that many many people don't to see that there were no matter how broke we were at the time there was somebody less well off than we were. And, and it, I think it increased my compassion and my understanding about how the world works and how people work within it. So for people that are moving here from, let's say, a small rural community, maybe they haven't been exposed to other people except for people that have lived there for generations, right. or, or something similar, 
what would you say is a good way where they could almost have a similar experience here? Because I know a lot of people that have moved from small towns, they're now here, and I'm sure it's got to be culture shock for them. Oh my God. In terms of even just the way like we drive on the freeways and, and just, just the busyness of this town. How do they sort of become more at peace with who they are so they don't have to become chameleons? The first thing I would say is, as hard as it may be, especially in this superficial town, do not ever compare yourself or your journey to anyone else and their journey. You have no idea what they have been through, what they may be going through that they themselves, I mean in the future, that they themselves aren't even aware of that may befall them. So this town, I, I keep mentioning this, but because the town is so superficial, this town bases a lot on what you wear, the table you get, the car you drive, your zip code, hell, your area code on your phone, you know. And um, I'm a proud 323, by the way. <laughs> and um, uh, don't do that. You know, the values that you probably grew up with, those of you who came from a smaller town, are usually pretty good values and hold on to them. And because this town, will try to beat the goodness out of you. It will. There, I, I have recently written a book and, and, the, and there's a chapter in it called The Company You Keep. And the subtitle is Beware the Soul Eaters. Because you will come here with your joy and your happiness and somebody who isn't as joyful or happy as you will be jealous of that and will try to knock you down a peg and make you feel that the little accomplishment that you just got, not that much. And they'll throw their thing that they've just done at your feet like, you know, well, yeah, it's nice you got that audition, but I just got this job on such and such. It's, it's amazing how insecure so many people here are. So beware the soul eaters. Those are the ones who you share some good thing that has just happened to you and they try to diminish its value and avoid them like the plague. Yeah, and I think that's great because I know you, you're all about being positive and, and your book is about remaining upbeat and positive. But I think that's an important part to touch on because I know, especially for me when I came here, I would notice a lot of braggarts. And I remember somebody who had been here a few years said, you know, sometimes none of that is even true that you're <laughs> so telling right. me. But it psychs you out because you don't know that when you're right. 18. You think when these people are telling you this, you believe it. And right. you're right, they do these little things. And so I think that's important to talk about because you are about remaining upbeat and believing in the good. Right. But there is that element that I think a lot of people aren't totally aware of at first. You're very right about that. You, you know, you're swept along in the, in the dream of what Hollywood can be and what you can be within it. And, and you want to be around the people that are successful. But as you said, a lot of people build up, build themselves up in a way that isn't isn't genuine, isn't real. And they often do it in a concerted effort to diminish the person they're talking to. Right. It's shocking. I mean, it it's is, shocking yeah. to me that people do that, but they do. And the sooner, uh, the more quickly you can get aware, become aware of that, the better. And I think too, that m growing up in the theater, my folks were professional actors. They weren't famous, but they made their living doing it. Growing up in the theater, made me acutely aware of the fact that no project, no matter what business you're in, no project 
is done exclusively by one person or by one cohort. You know, it, it, it takes all of us to make, especially a creative project, to make a, to write a play, to perform a play, to produce a play or a film or a television show. It takes a lot of people. The craft service guy is just as freaking important as the executive producer. And you're gonna see a lot more of the craft service person than you do with the executive producer. So you have to be kind to everyone because everyone that you meet in this, and respectful of everyone, but you also have to identify the soul leaders and avoid them. But everyone that you meet in this business or any other business can become, in essence, an agent for your good. For instance, that job, that first job that I booked, I got because of a cook at a hamburger stand that I worked for. He sold the hamburger stand, he took a few favorite headshots of me, and went to work at the commissary at Warner Brothers and handed them out in line to people going, she's an actress, she's fabulous. I have no idea how he knew that because he never saw me perform anything other than the act of making change. But he just believed in me and he liked me and I liked him and I got my first job out of it. And you never know who you're going to meet who's gonna say, hey, you know, uh, you, you know, you should know her. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, someone that you did an interview with recently um, is the one who introduced us. True. You yeah, know, that's so true. it works all the time. Very true. And it's, and it's wonderful. And it isn't just about being Pollyanna pie in the sky, believing everything will be good. No. It's just about realizing that you're luckier than you think you are and that you accomplish more than you think you do because everybody in this town, as I said, is trying to beat that concept out of you. That if you didn't get a major television show or if you didn't do this, that, you know, meeting with agents or, or potential managers or working on your own show or something like that is worthless. Well, it's not. It's sustaining. It's your job. Often my litmus test for someone who's negative is then I look at where they are and mm -hmm. I usually see the people that are positive are in a good spot. And so that, for me, because I, I experienced a lot of people who would brag, and you're right, it's always in a way that's done. And then you finally become aware after many years of seeing, oh, but I see why. Because the ones yes. that are affirming, they're usually not in a bad situation. Right. And so that's how, I, I don't know if that's worked for you, but that's how I've been able to see who's usually, um, I know Julia Cameron calls it a, a poisonous playmate. Oh, yeah. And I love that term. Oh, oh, yes, that's a very good one. And in, in the Beware the Soul Leaders chapter of the book, I talk about that. You have these people in your lives, and they're your girlfriends or your guy friends or whatever. And you notice, you'll always notice that when you go and you meet for drinks or whatever, you're going right. to, so how are you doing? You know, she says to you or he says to you. And you say two sentences. And before you know it, you've spent 15 minutes talking about her or him they don't really engage in to find out what's happening with you for real. They open with that, but then it all comes back to them. Yeah. And, you know, identify those people in your lives. And if you think that they're a valuable person and you would like to keep them, talk to them about this lopsided uh, relationship as far as your communication goes. And if they want to make an effort to change, wonderful. And if not, minimize your experience with them because you don't want to hang out with anybody who leaves you feeling worse uh, than when you got there to meet them, you know? 
Right. Yeah. And I think it's a real skill to know who, who those people are. And sometimes if you're saying to yourself, well, you know what, I still enjoy their company. I'm going to know that that's how the relationship is. Right. And I'm going to keep anything that's good sometimes to yes. myself because I don't want it to be Absolutely. sour. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They can taint it, you know, right. with their, don't get that on me. I don't right. want that stuff. Keep that to yourself. So yeah. I'm keeping my good to me right now because you're my, you're my martini friend for today. That's sure. what I'm doing today. I'm not sharing my precious things with you because they're not, they're not valued. They're not treated with regard. Right. People, places, and things. Yeah. Right. You just kind of know, okay, you're, yeah, you're my martini friend or coffee yeah. friend, whatever it is. Right. And, and I'm going to minimize anything that I don't want to have tainted. And what do you think that is in this town? Because people say they want other people to do well. And I think there are people that do yeah, encourage that for people. And then there's others that don't. And how do you know kind of when to keep good news to yourself? And I know that sounds really negative and I don't no, mean to be so... No, it doesn't. No, I mean, you, you, you share the good news with the people that you trust and that love you and that are rooting for you, who are the same people who, when you have a bad day, they, and you say, oh, this didn't work or whatever it is, they go, they commiserate with you for a minute and they kick in the ass and say, all right, on to the next. Oh yeah, that must've been disappointing, but you know, there's tomorrow. You didn't get the... Listen, nobody gets your job you get your job. Nobody gets your job. If you didn't get the job, guess what? Wasn't your job. You know, don't you, and you get, don't go around saying you lost an audition. You cannot lose anything you never had. The only time you can lose something is if you got hired for the job and got fired, you know? So the, the, I'm sorry, did I wander far afield from no, the question? No, 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 I, I like that, I like that. So that, let's suppose, I, oh, well, she got it over me, she took it over me. No, no it doesn't exist? No. Okay. No, it's, it was her job, it wasn't your job. And if you did, if you screwed up in the room and you didn't do your work, your preparatory work before your audition or your story pitch or whatever it was, and you think you could have done better, then just do your, do your due diligence more thoroughly the next time you have a, a chance. But it isn't, if you went in and for any of these interviews, and this goes for any business, you know, this really goes for any business. Um, if you did your best in that room, then you, you went to work. Whether you booked the job or not, you, were, you went to work. I just worked today. I walked in, I did the audition that I wanted to do. I pleased myself. I, did, I gave it the values I wanted it to have. I can't do any more than that. And you get, again, this applies to everything. You, in this business and many others, you have no control over why you do or do not get something. All through my career, at all ages in my career, I have been too tall, too short, too fat, too thin, too pretty, not pretty enough, too old or too young. You know, I mean, it, they just come up with anything. If it's not you, if you're not the one that they hire, well, she wasn't quite this or she wasn't quite that or she's, you know, or he or whatever. So it, it, just let it go because you can't, you only have control over what you do in that room. That's all you have control over. And then you have to go and have fun right after that audition. That's another thing that I advise people to do is have somewhere fun to go or someone fun to meet after every audition because that's your reward. You should reward yourself. You went to work. You went to work. What would you say is the secret then to remaining positive in a town where some people do want to see you succeed and others for maybe their own insecurity or whatever it is that's going on with them don't? 
how do you remain maybe maybe is it just a, an even keel is it trying to remain at a high level in your mind in terms of being happy being upbeat what, what do you think is the key you live your life between the jobs and the auditions that's what everyone forgets is that you know it's easy to be happy and up and positive when you're working it, that's easy but what we forget is that our lives happen between those jobs you know and i remember when i first got here the incessant sunshine was tyrannical you know it was like it's i because i came from the east coast originally and every place i lived elsewhere had weather you know even northern california had weather and southern california is sunny every day you know it's you you don't really have reference points about remember when it was snowing that day when we went out or you were wearing that red parka oh i love that that yes that's when we did that thing no it's <laughs> sunny and you know 70 all the time right. so um so when I first got here, the tyranny of the sunshine made me think, oh, well, it's a perfect day. I should be out and doing something. I should be accomplishing something. I should be trying to get a job or meet a better agent or, or you know, something. I should be doing something. And then I, it finally dawned on me that, oh, no, it's a beautiful day and I don't really have an appointment. I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to take a picnic. I'm going to go. Or I'm going to go for a hike or I'm going to go for a drive or I'm going to live my life. People just suspend their existence so often between their shots, you know. And so to live your life and to give yourself credit for the things that you have accomplished and the things that you're trying for and to realize that you are so much luckier than you realize. I mean, we go right because we're because we're looking for the big brass ring we pass by the shiny penny on the street, which is an indication that, hey, there's a shiny penny. That's for me. That's luck. Look at that and say, oh, that's a little sign that money's coming my way. Or you're running a little bit late and a parking space opens up where it is you're going. That's a little miracle. Thank you, whoever. <laughs> in LA. You know? yeah. yeah, especially in <laughs> yeah. LA. Yeah. But those are, we have to acknowledge the, all the good things, all the tiny little miracles that happen every day. Acknowledge them. And if you acknowledge them, you'd be amazed at how many more start coming your way. And here's something that I learned. I'd never heard this before. But many years ago, someone said to me, you know, about the shiny penny thing. And I would always pick up a penny. And they said, you know, what I heard was it, it's best if you pick it when it's heads up. If it's tails up, don't pick it up. But what you do, if you find a penny when it's tails up, you turn it over so it's heads up for the next person. Oh. So you're sharing the concept that good things happen and that luck is out there. And, you know, if you get in line and it moves quickly. If you're at the bank and, and the teller is nice to you, if you're out with your friends and the bartender buys you around, these are all indications that things are going well in your life. Well, you know, when I came here, Facebook didn't exist. I'm a Generation Xer, so social media wasn't around. The internet wasn't only, only some, you know, obscure computer engineer knew about it. But now, everybody who comes here is on their phone oh and they see other people having great things happen to them. Right. 
But I think that, and I've especially seen this in millennials, there's like this social media envy or there's all this stuff is happening for other people because we're comparing all this great stuff that they're putting out compared to our own lives. What's your advice for people that, yeah, they want to say, hey, congratulations on LinkedIn. So-and-so just got this. That's great. But then they feel, when is it my turn? Right. Well, my advice would be, look up. (laughs) Don't be here all the time. You know, I swear that subsequent generations are going to have little needle thumbs. They're, everything's going to be adapted, you know, to just poking little dots, you know, little letters to the thing. Look up, get your head out of your technological ass, you know? <laughs> Great, I like it. And, and, and look at the people around you. Inter- really interact with the living beings who yeah. are in front of you right now. I, I know you've seen this too, but, uh, you know, you go out and you see people at a table together and they're texting each other or other people. Yeah. And you're right about the, about the I, remember I said earlier, stop comparing yourselves to other people because you have no idea what their journey is or, or, or what, if what they're saying is even true. Facebook and, 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 and texting and all of these other things gives you the impression that everybody else is having all the fun, doing all the traveling, having all the sex, meeting all the great stars, you know, and right. just realize you just cut that in half by 50% and that may be closer to the truth about what they're really doing in their lives. But look up. Don't be here. This is not what we're about. You know, we're about our brothers and sisters in the world, all over the world. And um, to be and, and think you know, be in the, if you're at the market and you see somebody whose hair is beautiful, tell them that that's pretty. Tell them you love that jacket. Tell them you love that outfit, which I do, by the way. Karen. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, say nice things to other people. Stop making it all about you. Because when it's all about you, no matter how successful you are, it can be pretty freaking bleak. Because you, you're not relating to the rest of the world. There's so much around us that is interesting and fun and, and diverting, you know? And, uh, and we just get locked into this. And it's, it's, such a, it's, it's actually toxic for you. Because you know, as, as I think you referred to, the, the millennials and the college students, there have been psychological studies about the massive increase in depressed college students who spend so much time on Facebook and comparing themselves to everybody else. It is a psychological toxin. And the way to get rid of toxins is to cleanse your body with, with you know, getting outside of yourself and, right. and reaching out to other people. Stop thinking about you all the time. Right, and no one posts pictures of themselves going through a depression on Facebook. No! <laughs> They don't post pictures of themselves not being able to get out of bed. They put, hey, I'm here with so-and-so. Look right. who I met at this screening, or, right. which is great. But I think then we have a false idea of how well other people's lives are compared to our yes. own. And that causes just yes. a lot of insecurity. A lot of insecurity. And this town feeds on insecurity. It does, yeah. And I think as, as a, a younger person, they don't realize that at first. I no, think, you know, and I, I think that's important for for people to be aware of, yeah. so that they can find their own things, a hobby, whatever, right. that they can focus on. That's not about looks. It's not about status. Right. Yeah. And and being nice to other people, taking a minute to say a kind word. It takes nothing from you, and what you get back is 
I mean, I actually drive down the street sometimes. There was an older man standing on the corner waiting for a bus. And I rolled, look, I'm acting like you roll down a window anymore. <laughs> I, I rolled down my window. Uh -huh. And I said, that's a fabulous jacket. And he looked oh. up and he smiled. And, and you have no idea what the kind thing you just did or said. Right. What that person's going through. You may have just lifted them. Sure. In a moment of despair. And you also get a charge oh my God, from yes. giving someone a call. Yeah. It, it becomes a little bit addictive because you yes. get this nice feeling because yeah. you see maybe that he did look down or whatever. He was just, and then you, you, right. you've changed his day. Right. Can you think of a moment, uh, let's say the first five years of you living in LA that helped shape your career? Like what, I, I know you talked about you, you'd made inroads or you, you, unbeknownst to you that someone that you used to work with remembered you fondly and was was handing out your picture but in another story maybe that like you you weren't expecting and it, it it was your first five years and it kind of changed things for you well i know that something happened in the first five years that reinforced my ethic and my sense of integrity in this town and it was when uh a very well-known personality had taken a shine to me and knew that I uh, was looking for an apartment and offered to set me up in an apartment, no strings attached. And, um, well, I happen to know a little something about strings. <laughs> and um, I refused. I mean, I graciously refused, but I mean, and I, met the person at the apartment to see what it was like and I took a girlfriend along with me just in case and it was beautiful and it would have been wonderful but I would have been bought in some way and you know it didn't so I still by saying no thank you I still needed to find an apartment but the 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 power that I felt in once again counting on myself I'd like to pay my own rent and buy my own groceries, thank you very much, because um, that leaves me my own woman. And that was really empowering. When I've shared that story with some other people long ago, they were, are you crazy? You could have taken the apartment, it would have been fine. No, it wouldn't have. It would have compromised me in my uh, world of morality. It would have been the wrong thing to do. And so I didn't do it. And, and again, I had to still find another apartment. But when you believe in yourself and you take a chance, things come. And, uh, and it came. So um, that more than, because honestly, maintaining your integrity and your, your um, sense of self-worth is the most important tool that you have here. Absolutely the most important. And it goes back to many other things that we've talked about because if you have faith in yourself and you know who you are in the world, it doesn't matter what anyone else says or does because you know who you are. And often the people who come from the smaller towns have even a better sense of who they are because they grew up in a much less superficial world where hard work and, and values were valued. You know, so to me, that's the, your state of mind and your sense of self-worth are the most important things that you can have. And so that was a real 
an opportunity for me to, you know, put up or shut up. This is my, you know, this is either what I believe or it's not what I believe. And here's an, an easy way to, it would have been easy. It would have been very easy to just take that opportunity. But I didn't, this, this isn't the way you go forward in my estimation. Yeah, and that's a real uh, elephant in the room in terms of uh, the entertainment industry. And it happens to men too. It's, of course it's not it just does. Women. Um, and, and it can happen from other men or other women or Absolutely. whatever. But I think it's, it's hard, especially for a younger person too, that maybe then somehow feels very special because this person has chosen them. Right. And it's hard for them to and see. And we want to be chosen. Right. That's why we come to Hollywood. Right. Choose me. See me. You know? Yes. Right. And it's someone temptation. In, right. In power. And uh, I, I've known people on both sides of the coin and have gone the way of, of being taken care of. And there are implications. And I think oh, people yes. don't totally realize that. Right. And then if you got what you got, did you get it? Or was it, or was it just given to you because of something that you bartered with, you well, know? And, and that, that's the other thing I say, too, about, you know, everybody, most everybody loves to have a good time sexually. So my, someone, I was speaking at a college at one point, and this one girl came up to me and said, so what do you think if somebody, what about sex? If some, and the casting couch, what do you think about that? And I said, look, if you think you would have fun in bed with this person, have sex with them for that reason alone. But do not think for one moment that you are going to get something out of it other than fun, because you, no matter what sex you are, no matter who's propositioned you, you have something that that person can get anywhere else. And they, if they're a person who says they have a job for you or some other way of elevating you, has something that only a handful of people have to give. You have nothing to bargain with, but if you think you might have a good romp, go ahead, but don't expect anything out of it. You know, and that also leaves you in power of your own life because you made the choice, not because something was dangled before you, um, but uh, because you decided you would like to do it because it would be fun not to get right. something. Right, and I think too there's this whole scarlet letter thing where, oh yeah, she did this. And, and sometimes I can't even, I mean, it just feels like it's a made up story. And shoot, right. that's, that's the ultimate putting the scarlet letter on someone. Well, right. this person got this because of this. Right. And half the time it's not even true. Right, and spoken out of jealousy, like, right. like you've, uh, you mentioned before, yeah. Right, and it could be that the other person actually did that and they feel, you know, but it's Projection. this interesting thing <laughs> that, that, that goes around this and it's not openly talked about, right? but it exists. And um, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think if, if you, if it's not about any type of barter trade agreement, right. then, then that's your personal choice. But it, it, it's a tough thing. And, and surviving the gossip of this person did that for this is, is a very toxic thing that... Right, you don't want that. No. Again, I don't want that on me. No, <laughs> yep. get rid of that. And yeah. remaining upbeat and finding hobbies. Right, living your life. Living your life. Live yeah. your life every day. Try to do something every day that has nothing at all to do with show business. Robin, what are some mistakes you made early on coming here and in your career that you wish you hadn't or that weren't maybe horrible mistakes, but there were something that had you known you wouldn't have done, whether it's just spending too much time thinking about this or whatever it is? 
Yeah, okay. Um, there was, um, one of my early jobs was um, on Fantasy Island. And uh, I was uh, among a retinue of young women, you know, uh, that were surrounding this older man who was uh, the, the star, the guest star of the show. And um, so we broke for lunch and one of the other women, I, I had lines, this other woman didn't have lines, but she, we, we were walking to lunch and she was a, a goddess. I mean, she was so beautiful and very sweet and really lovely. And we were just talking and I liked her right away. And then she started to tell me about her husband. And immediately I got this overwhelming sense of dread on her behalf. I mean, I have chills now even remembering it. And um, he had, she'd been working at a Dairy Queen in Canada or something and, and he'd, he was older than she and he spotted her and he saw what she was and he got her into Playboy and she had a, a, a you know, Playboy centerfold spot. And, and um, she, the more she talked about him, the creepier I felt about this guy. But you know, we, we just met each other. What am I gonna say to, about her husband? You know, you better watch out for him. And, and then I learned that she was with my agency. And then about a week or a month later, two months later maybe, I'm walking with my agent to an audition and he tells me that this woman just got a part in a major motion picture. Now I have been a, a classically trained actress since I was two years old and she had just blown into town. Now, she was a goddess, I have to give you that, and Hollywood, you know, eats that up. But I was so jealous. I couldn't believe it. I was so, just churning with envy inside and resentment, and, and it would, oh, it felt like it was awful. And about two months after that, I was going to um, New York. I had a play that I was taking to New York that I wanted to shop around a bit, and I'm walking home, and I see um, a headline, you know, beauty queen slain. And I thought, oh, it was some, you know, Miss New Jersey or something. I didn't pay any attention. I called my agents to find out what was going on, if I should come her early. And they said, oh, we're just so worried. We're just so upset about Dorothy. And I put on my oh, best, my best, I tried my best to care. And I went, oh, really? Why? And she said, didn't you hear? Her husband just shot her in the face and murdered her because she was drifting away from him. And it was Dorothy Stratton who was the subject of that film, Star 80. And even now, you see, that the, I was so oh ashamed God. of myself for begrudging her one moment of celebrity or joy, because I had no idea right. what lay before her. And I had no idea what she went through to get that, to get there, to, to her moment in the sun. Yeah. And how dare I, how dare I? And that was, I, I, I was more affected by, what, what, by her death and what it called up in me than I was when my own grandfather died because I was so ashamed of my jealousy. You know, I was going to bring that story up as you started to tell me, and I have no, I mean, I have chills wow. right now. I did not even know you were gonna go there. I was gonna bring up 
the Dorothy Stratton movie. Oh my that God, I saw. were you so really? So this is like so. I mean, I have chills right now because I was going to talk about that. Whoa! And I didn't even know you. So when I said the word Dorothy, you went like and that. It just so... hit me. Yeah, I, I have chills right now. Well, that was one of the biggest mistakes I ever made, and boy, did it change me. Yeah, I remember seeing the movie, uh, and and. It, yeah, it's 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 very sad. Um, and she was such a lovely girl. She was such a genuinely sweet person. You know. Yeah, I, I didn't know her, but I mean, she wasn't a climber. She took advantage of the opportunities that came to her, and and so she should have, and so would we all. Right, we all would. You know? That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And oh, yeah. that little bitter wow. part of me was—I just couldn't. Well, and I think too, as as younger women, we're we're trained to be competitive in some sense, or maybe this town. I know we talked about yes, this, yes, the this, culture, this, of the this culture of this town. town. So I think it's unfortunately somewhat normal, as especially you know being in grade school. You know, you can just remember feeling the same way towards someone, and yeah. I think being honest enough to talk about. It. I know Mark Maron is always bashed for his talking about how he was jealous of something, and I actually think it's healthy that he's able to admit that when I think a lot of people feel it. So right. you just happen to have an experience that is, is so powerful because right. most don't end up that way. And it right. is, wow, I, I was going to literally so bring that up. Mind meld. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And for anyone that doesn't know the Dorothy Stratton story, I, I encourage them to look it up just it's as a way to... As just, a little primer right. for what can happen. Yeah, yeah, and just again comparing outsides right. to or, or other people's outsides to our insides, and especially in this town, and we never know. Right, and when I said about a primer about what can happen, I don't mean the result of what happened to her, but I just mean what can happen to you, as sure. when you resent and and uh, bear jealousy and envy towards someone who has nothing at all to do with you or your life or your trajectory in this life. Yeah, and I think as, as time goes on and we go out for things, whatever our chosen pursuit is, and we don't get them and we see other people get them, it's just natural that it's going to happen and we're going to feel upset. And I think it's just to cycle through it and be like, okay, I feel it and now I'm going to let it go now. Exactly, feel it. I mean, it's inhuman not to feel it. Yeah. We have to feel it, mm -hmm. but we don't have to live in it. You know, feel it, be disappointed. It's disappointing. Right. But you live to, to bat another day, you know? Wow. Yeah, that's quite a story. That's quite a story. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Wow. Robin, after doing television and film for years, you've decided to write a book. Can you tell us about the book, why you wrote it? Yes, um, my husband, who's a cinematographer, was invited back to his alma mater to uh, help the senior thesis students with their films and to advise them and to kind of walk them through things. And so he said, hey, throw in an extra ticket. My wife will talk to the theater department, you know. So, um, so we did. And I'm sitting at my mother-in-law's, you know, and I took my reel back. And, I th and I'm sitting there the night before we were supposed to talk. And I thought, oh, they've all just been through, you know, theater history and stagecraft and all of these sorts of things, you know, what do I have to share with them that they haven't just been steeped in for the last, you know, four years? And, um, and I thought, oh, I can tell them what it's like to actually live the life of an artist, what that really entails, the day-to-day -day 
stuff that helps sustain you as you go forward. So I began writing the book on my mother-in-law's dining room table, oh, wow. and that became the basis of my talk to the students the next day. And then it just evolved into that, and a couple years later I had the book, which I just happened oh, to have right Oh, please, would you here. show it? Yeah, Isn't it's it amazing? gorgeous And there cover. are Ginzu knives, too. <laughs> so it's, it's a, a survivor's guide to Hollywood, how love to play it. the game without losing your soul. I love the cover. Thank you, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, so yeah, so I'm, uh, and it's it's gotten wonderful reviews, and uh, and the thing that I like the most about it, I think, is that it applies. I've gotten housewives, house painters, people who aren't in this business at all, people in the computer business from all over who have read the book, who say, this is just a book about life. This is just a, a good bunch of information about how to. Be happy, and to to uh, uh, just another perspective on how to live your life. It's sort of it's obviously predicated on my experiences here, but it applies to everything. I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm working on a, a one woman show now. A friend of mine came to me and said, "You need to do a one woman show, a you know, kind of the book as an anchor, but expanding it a bit." And I'm going to call it uh, a survivor's guide to Hollywood and other strange places because <laughs> there are strange places everywhere, and. Uh, so yeah, so it, it applies to all walks of life, and that I think was my chief surprise and delight when I when people started buying it and reading it and reviewing it. So it's interesting you say about you know being happy because I think a lot of people and and I haven't achieved success that I want to achieve, but I, I've heard from others. I think forget which interview I heard from someone that once you supposedly reach this like imaginary level all your problems are going to disappear. <laughs> right. And the person said, no, that's when they really start to come out. <laughs> because you, you, you think that once this certain level is achieved that you're going to just, it, it's going to be like gr green lights and, and you know, just no. yes everywhere and you're never going to feel a down day. No, you see, that's the, why I say live your life in between the jobs and the moments because that's the only life you really have. You know, there's always going to be someone on the ladder, on a rung on the ladder ahead of you you know, because you started when you started, and they started when they started, and there's going, you know, they're going to, there's always going to be somebody ahead of you. So you you never reach the point, because it's it's an evolution. Our lives, all our lives, are evolving at all times if you're paying any attention, and if you are invested in your life, you know, psychologically and emotionally and metaphysically, you're growing. Right. From the people that are artists that have read your book, what's the chapter or what part it really stands out to them, do you think, from, from the feedback you've received? Well, I've, I've gotten feedback on all of it, which is lovely. In, in the middle of the book, there are little takeaways, little yellow highlighted passages that kind of have the uh, advice for you. And, and one of the things that someone has told me is the idea of celebrating really uh, struck home with them, and that we we always wait to. Um, I know I speak sometimes in these broad brushstrokes. We always do this, or everyone does this, and I hope you know I'm just one has a tendency. Sure. To, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you celebrate birthdays and holidays, but you don't celebrate that you just got a parking space. You don't That's celebrate true. that you just. Um, oh, a residual check came in. Right. You know, you don't celebrate that, oh, we just had this lovely day together, you know, and 
And I think we have to celebrate everything because as Napoleon said, uh, in victory, you deserve champagne. In defeat, you need it. <laughs> and so some of my celebrations have involved a, a glass of champagne, usually after I've stunk up the room in an audition or something, you know, like, well, that was terrible. All right, champagne. We have to do something to sort of counterbalance. But, but other than that, the, we should celebrate our lives. You know, I mean, I, when I was a little girl, I, I loved... I don't know why, but I, maybe because the grown-ups, all the gr people in the theater that my parents were around and I was around and came home and there were always parties at our house. There was always, you know, a big pot of chili or something more expensive, depending upon how well we were doing at the time. But, and people together and people breaking bread and having a drink and, and, and I just, I was, couldn't wait for, to be grown up enough to make that happen in my own life. And so giving, someone once asked me, if you could live whatever life you wanted to live, what would it be? And now at this stage in my life, it would be to travel, to give parties, and to do a fabulous play once a year. That sounds nice. I would love to do that. And someone said to me, so why don't you do it? And I thought, good question. <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah, and, and so the celebration. She said, this one reader of the book said she loved the idea of celebration. And um, I encourage everyone to do that. You don't have to wait for the big things. Celebrate the little things because that's what's happening now. And as you said, you know, people wait when I get to the place, that magical place where everything is perfect and I'm always in demand and there's nothing. No, all of your insecurities go with you, no matter how famous or rich you are. You know, do people like me because I'm famous and rich can be a new one if you need a new insecurity. Most of us have plenty of our own, but you know, <laughs> you can add new ones in. But there, there's never, there isn't an end because we're growing all the time. There's not a, I suppose there's a place when I make, people could say, when I make this much money, then I will begin to live the life I want. But if you're not living some version of the life you want right now, you're not living. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, yeah, the John Lennon quote, what is it, life happens while you're making other Busy plans? Busy making other plans. Yeah, I, I love, love that. that quote. Love yeah, that. that's wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, so that, and then giving yourself credit for things that you accomplish, that is something that people have said to me. Uh, my niece uh, is uh, working with some women who are young actresses just come to Hollywood, and she's handed my book out to a couple of them, and one of the girls came back to her and said, um, uh, I took your aunt's advice and I am giving myself credit for all of the, I'm sending out my picture and resume and giving myself credit for that's my work today. I went to work today. I'm looking for agents and the putting in, that's not the drudgery, that's the job. You know, so you do that and you give yourself credit for having sent out three envelopes today. Have a celebration, you know? And when you get a job, you buy your friends around a drinks. I know I talk about drinking a lot, don't I? Um, <laughs> but uh, it's sort of the epitome of a little celebration. Sure, me, you know? sure. Well, what do you say to people, though, that are scared to be upbeat because maybe in their lives another shoe drops once they, you well, know, they start listening for the other shoe. Guess what? You're going to get one. You know, it's like when you leave the house today, I, 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 or when I have left the house sometimes, if I'm not, you know, listen, I'm not Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, I get pissed off too. Yeah. And the, the little annoyances of, of life get to me occasionally. But um, I notice 
that when I go, if I start swearing at the first idiot driver that, you know, doesn't pay attention on the road, I am astonished at how quickly a lot of other idiots show up. Yeah. You know, you call that to you. Yeah. There's a metaphysical quality of that, that if you're afraid to do something exciting or fun because you're afraid it's not going to work out, well, it won't. It won't work out in one of two ways. It won't work out because you didn't even bother to try, so that's not going to work out. Or it's not going to work out because you pronounced not working outedness upon it, you know? And, um, and if you, it's, there's another, I don't know if this is biblical or not, but there is a, there are two that I like a lot. One of them is life and death is in the power of the tongue. I think that is from the Bible. I don't know, chapter or verse. And the other one is what you fear comes upon you. Mm. And I, I don't know whether that's a biblical attribution or not, but, um, but those two things are very true. You know, you keep pronouncing that, oh, I don't have enough money for the rent this month. I don't have enough money. Oh my God, what am I going to do about the rent this month? Well, when the rent comes due, you're likely not to have what you need. You know, I, one time when I was, uh, I didn't have enough money for the rent, I had $25 in my pocket. And I, uh, and I, so a girlfriend came over and I said, let's go have a margarita. And I bought it. And two days later, I had a job that paid the rent for three months. Wow. You know, I mean, you have to, you have to step out in faith, you know, that, that the things that you're going to, that you'll have what it is that you need, that things will be provided for, of course, with the caveat that you don't rent of Malibu mansion that you don't lease a fancy car so you look good when you arrive at your audition, which is stupid because you park in the street or somewhere the casting person isn't going to see you anyway, so sure. it doesn't matter. And if you need a car to make you feel good about yourself, then this is not the business you should be in. So, Robin, can you share with us one of your toughest days here in LA, maybe an audition gone bad or whatever, and then how you turned it around? Oh yes, I remember this very, very well. I had finished, I had just come off of my first television series. It was the very first television series ever on cable. It was called Brothers. It was on Showtime. It ran for five years. And um, I had come off of that show and now I had one year, so this day that you're asking about occurred, I had gone through one calendar year of going, of uh, having deals made for 12 new shows, okay? So I went out on my auditions. It was me and a couple of other people. Uh, you know, so I signed my contracts, everything was ready, and I didn't get one of the shows, not one of them. So this isn't auditions that I didn't get. These are deals that were made for me that if I had walked out of the room with the job, I would have had another television series. And I went one calendar year, 12 of those events, and didn't get one. It was down to me and two other women. And most discouragingly, one of the episodes was down to, one of the pilots was down to me and nobody else. <laughs> and I still didn't get it because the producer writer decided that she wanted to, to play the role. Now, none of those shows ever went on to become series, but that didn't mitigate my feelings on this sure. particular day. And I was crushed. I mean, it, it was the hardest, I couldn't believe that this is what had happened again in this year. And I literally went on my face on the rug and I just wept and wept and wept. And I, and then I said, God, you know, if this, I just want peace. I want to be happy. 
If you think that I'm supposed to move to Kansas, raise chickens and have babies, I'll do it. I just want a sign. I have to know, I have to know something. I can't take this any longer. This, this amount of continual rejection after getting so close to so many things. Um, and I, and I, I stopped crying because I really liked the rug and my, I was getting schmutz on it, so I had to quit. But so after, right after I said the thing, I need a sign, I have to have something that is unequivocal, the phone rang. It was my agent. I was, had an audition for a movie with the then very old and ailing, I believe, Robert Mitchum, but it was still Robert Mitchum, and it was an old movie star, and I'd watched him when I was a little girl, and, and I was really excited about the audition, and, and uh, oh, and then I had been uh, something about, I had this feeling, I often will open a book, uh, you know, with a metaphysical or spiritual or just, an, and just see what I see. Right. And I opened up, I think it was the Bible, and it was something about returning home, a, a, a desert zephyr returning you home. And I got this, so I, I need a sign, the phone rings, I have this audition, then I do the thing, I get the reading about the Zephyr, the feeling to go home. I got this overwhelming desire to return to Aspen, Colorado, which is where my parents owned their own legitimate theater uh, when I was a child. And I, so I said, I'm gonna do it. And I made reservations, and the name of the plane, uh, the, the train that went there was the Zephyr. And, um, and I, I went on the audition. I didn't get it, but I had my sign. Interesting. You know, it was, if this is all I said, if this is just my vanity, let me know, because I don't want to do this any longer. And if, the, if it's not, if it's not, I felt like this is what I was supposed to do. All the signs when I came here, I got work right away. I got my, my SAG card right away. I got an agent right away. And, and, and then I didn't work for a while, you know, and then I got jobs here and got jobs there and, and you know, waited, did, um, uh, waited cocktails at the improv and at the comedy store and all that in between gigs. And, and, um, and so, uh, so I'd gotten all these signs. So I really believed that this, and I grew up on stage and this is what I love. And so I thought, well, you know, I've had all these other signs that things are right. That's what I thought I was supposed to be doing, but you let me know if I'm not. And so when that call came, I felt, well, that is definitely a sign, you know? So, uh, and then I think, oh, and then I went away on the trip uh -huh. and I came back home and on my deck, outside my door was uh, a, a script for Murder, She Wrote and an offer to come and do it. No audition. Wow. Just on the basis of the work of mine that they'd seen before, they offered me the job. And I thought, well, that's my, that's my exclamation point on the sign that I asked for. But that day, Karen, that day, that yeah. rung me out. And, and I think a lot of people will have those on the rug moments. Yep. And, and I think they think that it's, it's just them. But I think, isn't that just a part of oh the evolution God. of being in a town where it's so competitive? Right. And you just have to realize it will come and then you'll get back up again. Right. Mm -hmm. If you want to. But the other thing that is critically important to take away from this is if you get the feeling that this isn't for you, that you would rather have a more stable sort of life, there is no failure in that. Mm. The failure is not trying. 
The regret comes from not trying. If you went, and believe me, if you come to Hollywood and you live here for a few years and you get a few jobs here and there, and then you decide it's not what you want to do, you are still going to have a lot more interesting stories to tell around the old water cooler at your job that Hewlett Packard or wherever it is that, <laughs> that you, you end up working because you had an adventure out here in, in you know, Hollyweird. You know, mm -hmm. you've, all the characters and all the strange things that happened to you and the experiences and the, the celebrities that you either brushed shoulders with or actually broke bread with or knew, you know, you'll, you'll have a great story and a great chapter of your life. So the, that is, you know, Going back to another question you asked about what aspects of the book have people responded to, giving, having been given permission, as it were, to change your mind is incredibly empowering. It's incredibly empowering. You didn't fail if you chose to go because you didn't like how you felt here. You win. You came, you tried, you had some experiences, and you went and you said, nope, not for me. I'd rather do this because you have to make a lot of compromises in this business. There are a lot of family events that you don't get to go to. Even if you're, it's your child, you know, if you have been in the business a long time and you, you know, you don't get to go to all the little league games. You don't get to go to all the family celebrations sometimes because a job comes up. My the women in my family who are some pretty stupendous women, many of whom have passed away in the last five or six years, they used to go on a trip every spring to Rome or to Greece or to Paris or to somewhere, and it was just the ladies. And, and they were a great bunch of broads, and that was a wonderful trip. And I'd buy a ticket every time, and every time I would have wow. a pilot that I had to go, you know, that they made my contract for, and that I was either get or not get. And I had to cancel my trips, my, living my real life with my family, and I didn't get them. I didn't get those pilots, but you know, the hope of that big fish, you know, going away in the springtime was, all, especially at that time, uh, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, the pilot season, fishing season, you catch your big fish, you might be able to live for years on, on the new show that you, that you just booked. But I had to cancel two trips with some of the most interesting, wonderful people um, for the possibility of getting a job, neither of which I landed. Right. You know, so it, it, you sacrifice for this business, you know, and so make sure that if you, for the time that you're sticking it out, that you don't sacrifice your daily life too, you know, go to the beach, have a picnic, you know, celebrate. I think this might be part of your new book, but is it something that you talked about in terms of getting self-absorbed in Hollywood? What is that? What does it look like? First off, so we can define it. Well, I think it being self-absorbed looks pretty much the same in every town and country across the globe. You know, it's you. I see it in other people often um, when they just don't. You know, you know. Sometimes you're walking down the street and someone goes hi, and you're abstract. You're you're absent-minded or thinking about something else, and you respond just fine. <laughs> no, that isn't what they said, but you didn't hear that, you know, right. you, you were in your own head. And there are a lot of people um, uh, in this town, but everywhere, that are in their own heads, and they don't, they don't ever ask about you. They never, they, and they're not good 
uh, ball players, you know, I mean, a conversation, you pass the ball. And if you don't pass the ball, then you're having a monologue and that's not really that interesting to people. And um, that's what it looks like to me. There's, a, there's this one actress that I encounter all the time. She absolutely knows who I am. But every time she meets me, it's the first time. Oh. And um, we have gone up against each other for, for roles, and, and I've gotten some of them, and she's gotten some of them. But there is, uh, I think a lot of the people who are the most self-absorbed are also those who are the most threatened, Ooh. who um, who feel that if they are not focused on themselves and what it is they need and what it is they want and what it is that perhaps you can deliver to them, um, uh, then they're not taking care of business. You know, they have to be, you know, it's all about the next thing. And, um, and that sort of reminds me of, the, of this man that I, when I first got my first television show, I was going to celebrate. And I took myself out to a place called Joe Allen's. It's called something else now, and it's quite a popular place, but I don't remember. And my father was an actor, and I, my parents divorced when I was very young, and he was a fantastic actor. And I think that I gravitate, although I've written and acted since I could write or speak, um, I think I pursued acting in a way to kind of bring my father closer to me, at least metaphysically, psychologically. And so he was the first one I called. My mother had supported me my whole life, but he, my father was the first one I wanted to call and say that I got my first job in TV. So I went to this bar and called him from a payphone. Do you remember what those are, any of you out there? Um, and he, uh, and I told him about it, and he was not that excited for me <laughs> because he was a little jealous himself yeah. because he was self-absorbed, you know. And, in, and instead of being joyful for his daughter, even though he was my father and we wouldn't ever go up for the same parts, I had landed something that was really good, and he couldn't really support me. In that, you know, he was, and I, my spirit really felt a wound. I, I played it off because, you know, that's how I roll. Sure, but sure. I, but I, but it hurt me. And, but I said, all right, he is, but the, I shook it right off and I said, he is not going to crunch my buzz. I'm going to carry on with this celebration. So I went to the bar and I bought myself a cocktail and um, I was chatting with the bartender and then a man came in and uh, he's, and I struck up a conversation and, um, and I was facing him and he was facing the door and, and, and he was, you know, he was talking to me, but, but I, but I could see that he was always looking at the door. He was always waiting. If every time the door opened, somebody came, because he was, you know, I was nobody. I was just some girl at the bar, you know, and, um, and he was waiting for somebody more important than I or someone who could do something for him. I could, yeah. I watched it. I watched his face as he was, you know, it was, I, I was just a time, I was a space holder. Sure, was a, sure. And, and sure enough, somebody came in and that, that he knew or that he started to chat up that was, and he, he dropped me as though he had never seen me before in his life. He didn't even say, lovely talking with you, my pal's here. Nothing like that. Yeah. He just, and I watched him like a scientist because I could see it happening. Maybe it was my father's recent sort of lack of enthusiasm for my job. Um, but that got me primed for this. But I watched this guy, as I said, like a, like a scientist. And, and I thought the casual yeah. rudeness and disregard that I saw and still see uh, 
in this town uh, is uh, really, it was no longer surprising, but it is remarkable. It is worthy of remarking on, you know, because it, it, ha it has nothing to do with you or me or whoever is the one who is the recipient of the rudeness. It says everything about the person who hasn't any social grace or any, uh, you know, experience in, in sharing life. I think there's almost like this acceptable level of that here, which unfortunately well it shouldn't be. But I think, yeah, it can be where they kind of people need to size you up. What can you, okay, this person can't do anything for me, then moving I'm, on. I'm moving on. Right. Um, but I want to go back to the parent thing, only that I've seen two types of performers here. And those are people that have, and I wouldn't call them stage parents, but parents that just follow everything they do and they're the biggest supporters of them and then I've seen the exact opposite. I don't usually see a lot of gray area of right. those that, oh that's nice dear, okay, and they change the subject. Right. And I, I think it's interesting that you were there to take care of yourself to celebrate for you. Um, what would you say to people that don't have the parent that's the cheerleader? Get your tribe, find mm. your people, make your family and stick with them and support them and, and, and let them support you. And take care of yourself. Make sure that you support you. Right. You know, it's you, because the, very rarely are members of the same family conceived or born under the same roof. You know, haven't you noticed that you've collected family, you're chosen, your friends are the family that you choose. And, um, and so it's, it's nice. I know everybody wants their parents' approval. That's really important. I mean, you can see all kinds of psychological damage done to children who are now grown adults who are still striving for the love of their parent or the approval of their father or their mother or something like that. It's a struggle. But, you know, uh, you, you be there for you. And, and allow yourself to celebrate. Other people don't have to celebrate you. You can celebrate yourself. And it's not big-headed or anything. It's let the universe know, thank you. Something good has happened. This is terrific. And, and even if you're celebrating it by yourself, however you celebrate it, you know, with a taco and a horchata or a glass of champagne or <laughs> meeting somebody and let's go to the movies or let's go for a walk on the beach or fly a kite or whatever. But do it, because we let all of these moments go by, all of these celebratory moments that, that, and then we think we've just been living this kind of life, when we could have been living this kind of life, and this kind of life, and this kind of life, but then, the, you know, the, we have to acknowledge the moments. If you don't acknowledge it, it's, I think it's like with any relationship, a human relationship, you know? If someone does something for you, and you acknowledge it, it increases by many fold the likelihood that they will do another nice thing for you. So if the universe is doing nice things for you and you go, meh, hmm, don't hurt the universe's feelings for goodness sake. You know, you, you, you need to acknowledge. It encourages, it, it, it stimulates the flow of more good things to celebrate. Yeah, I feel like people don't do that until a major upset or death happens. And I don't mean Often. to get so morbid, but it's no, true. No, I know what you I mean. Think. It's those, those moments in life that call everything into question. Oh, my God. 
you know, I, I now I look around, all these deaths that we've had in the last year of all these musicians who are in their like late 50s or 60 years old or something, yeah. way too young to go. I can remember when I was 14, my boyfriend and I and his mother drove down to, to uh, Connecticut to see his grandfather. And uh, they were sitting around the table and, they, and my boyfriend asked about, how's Mr. Smith down the road? And he said, oh, he died, only 70, such a young man. And up until that moment, I had never thought of life or, or age as relative. I thought of it as, you know, whatever the opposite of relative is. That, you know, that, you know, I'm 14, 70, that's a million years old. <laughs> but suddenly I saw this man who was himself only 69 or something, look at 70 as being young. And then I realized, oh my gosh, it is. It's, it, it, why are we waiting to realize that life is worth living right now? You know, why do we need Mr. Smith down the road to die at the very young age of 70? For us to start thinking about the days that we have. Because you know what, and this is not morbid, this is just the truth. No one knows. No one knows. That's true. When, when their time has come, you know? So if you keep waiting to, to have your adventures or to celebrate or, oh, I have a really fun one to share with you. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, okay. About living one's life and having one's adventures as you think to have them rather than, oh, someday when I reach that miracle point when everything is perfect and I'll do all the things I want to do and life will be great. Well, my husband and I have been married, I cannot believe it, I don't know where the time went, but 20 years. And we decided for our 20th anniversary, we were damn well going to do something. <laughs> you know, we were talking about a celebration. So we decided that we were going to take a month off and go to Italy. Ooh. And so I had been, I'd started this wonderful meditation. Uh, and I was meditating every day. And we had two things that we wanted to do. We wanted to sell the cabin. And one of my other uh, meditations was that I, and this was a year ago, exactly now, a year ago. Um, I had been for months, I had been meditating that pilot season would come, that I would have an audition for a pilot, I would book the pilot, uh, I would shoot the pilot, then that's usually done by the end of May, and then Evan and I would go off to have our anniversary trip in June, the show would get picked up, and I would come back, and I would start working. And I saw that, and I and part of the meditation, which is a wonderful thing to think of, is that the metaphysically, the thought sends the message out, and the feeling draws the event to you. So I imagined what how it would feel like when the agent called and said, you booked it, and I got that feeling in my stomach, and uh, you know, during the meditation. So I, I meditated, meditated like this all the time. Well, wouldn't you know it, pilot season came and went. I didn't even have an audition for, for a pilot that I'd been meditating. But the end of the meditation is always, all right, now let go your image and release it to the universe and let it manifest in a way that is perfect for you. So that's what I did at the every, so we're getting ready to go. We've booked our tickets. We're going to go. We're going to have a great time. I've already rolled off, the, my back has rolled off the lack of any audition for a pilot at all, much less booking one. And, um, and we're like about a month before we leave, the phone rings. It's my agent saying, would you like to do audition for a role on General Hospital? They're looking for a name and they want to have some known person come and do this role. And, and I said, when is it? He said, well, it's, you know, and I said, well, I'm gone for this. And Evan immediately says, wait a minute, honey, 
you know, we could change the trip if they're guaranteeing you a bunch of episodes. And I said, so they said they're not guaranteeing any number of episodes, but it'll be quite a few. But they want to shoot at least seven episodes before you go. And I said, well, if you can turn it into an offer so I don't have to audition for it, then I'll do it. Two days later, he called me. They took, they offered me the role. I shot the show just before we went away on our, on our trip. We go on our trip and the day we're leaving Florence to come home, my agent calls up and said, they want you for another eight episodes. Oh, wow. So everything that I asked for happened. It just happened differently than I had imagined it would. But, I, it, but the, that last sentence of the meditation was, I release it to the universe to let it manifest in a way that's right for me. And this was what was right for me. I'm seeing a pattern here too, and that's very interesting. And and it boils down to because it sounds like every time you book a trip, something yes. major happens oh my that's God. positive. Yes. So I'm wondering, and and the theme is I'm seeing that if you make plans for <laughs> yep. something, that new stuff. Because you know how when we're in the mindset of why isn't this? Who, they're not calling. They're not returning emails, and you're checking it and refreshing yes. it and all this stuff. Nothing happens. Right. But I'm sensing this theme of you make plans of something regardless. Right. And somehow something happens here. Yes. You stir the pot a yeah. little bit and things That's change. You you sh you you show that this isn't the be all and the end all of your existence. This business, this town, this job, this thing that you're looking for. There are other things worth doing that have nothing to do with it. And you you let that be known and something changes. And I do say in the book at one point, the surest way to book a job is to make non-refundable reservations. Oh, okay. Somewhere. All right. Yeah, because I'm seeing a very yeah. continuous yeah. pattern of it's better if you don't make them non-refundable. Right, there you go. Yeah, so give yourself a little bit of an out. Yeah. But plan the trip. And, right. and, and But it sounds like, yeah, you make these plans and then right. the work that you've already put in, opportunities yes. present themselves. Because, you know, I think one of the reasons is because you're happy. Hmm. You know? When you go into a, a, an, any interview for a job anywhere for anything, if you're happy... People feel that. They're drawn to that. So many people are not happy and they want to be around someone who is. And True. if you go in happy, no matter whether you're skipping and jumping or I don't mean you're glowing or anything, but you're just happy because you've been having real experiences in the world and mm -hmm. encountering real people, that is perceived and that informs what you do. And that, and that lifts you and everybody around you. And so that's why I think what you just perceived as the pattern is the case because you're happy. Because you have something to look forward to. Sorry. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. That you're not you're not just dragging around waiting for someone to make you happy. Oh, I like that. You've you've made yourself happy somehow, doing something. Robin, for any actor who wants to be a working actor in Hollywood, what are some things that they need to know about not just the business but also themselves? You have to have a good sense of yourself, and a good thick skin. It's very odd that an actor needs to be able to shed that skin immediately and be able to be vulnerable and express uh, feelings. But you must have thick skin because you are going, you're not going to get more jobs than you do get. Even the most famous actors, the ones you think work all the time, don't get every job they want. And uh, as a working actor, we working actors, um, don't get more jobs than we do. So you have to know that. You just have to know that. And then you have to 
um, act. I encourage, alas, equity is making this a little more difficult for equity actors, but, if, but you have to perform. So find a class to go to that keeps your, your uh, uh, instrument lubricated and working. So, you know, you're not going in and trying to read for Macbeth after not doing anything for, you know, six months um, or doing, you know, serial commercials. You have to, so f find a workshop, someplace where you can work and do scenes and scene study and that sort of thing. Be very careful of becoming a professional student. A lot of people come here and take, start taking classes and, they, and that satisfies them in a way. You know, being, you know, doing, even doing really good work in class is not the same as working. And so uh, it, it, you have to do that work in order to be able to be good enough to land work. So um, you have to um, get on stage as, as often as you can. There are lots of little theaters here that do plays. Again, equities. If you're not equity, you can do that. If you are equity, you have to do some workarounds to get that happening now, alas. But, um, but get on stage as much as you can so you're warmed up. Um, you should always, before you go out on an audition, you should be as prepared as you can possibly be. But for yourself, again, this is not so much about the audition, but for the person, go somewhere in public before you uh, go to the audition. Don't, because you, sh you need to, you're a human who is trying to display human emotions. And if you make this audition the most important thing of your day, that this is, you're getting ready for this, I can't do anything before this, I have to do this, this is it, this is the focus, the focus, the focus. Then you get in the room and you're not limber, yeah. you know? So I always try to go and have a cup of coffee or pick up my dry cleaning or chat with, you know, somebody, go get something from the market, do something. So I'm limber and I've, I've, I've had a conversation with someone before I'm having my first conversation with you, the casting director who holds my future in your hands. Um, so that's one thing that I think is very important. And then on the flip side of that, at the end of the audition, go somewhere, fun, reward yourself, you know? Have something to look forward to because a lot of times if you go in you can tell you can read the room whether you go, whether they received you well or not you can't always tell because there have been times when i've gone in and thought that i stunk up the room and got a call a few hours later saying i booked a job so you can't really judge by that but um but if it, if you've made the audition or the interview the most important moment of your day then you're very likely to feel this huge letdown at the end of it or this artificial sort of stiffness at the beginning of it because you haven't been a person, you know? I so, love that. That's excellent. So th those, yeah. I think, are the most important things because everybody has different levels of talent, so, you know, I can't really speak to that, but, but those things, you have to understand that you're not going to get more jobs than you do. You have to understand that nobody gets your job. You get your job and uh, never talk about having lost a job when it was only an audition. You didn't lose anything. You can't lose anything you didn't have. And, and go out somewhere before the audition to limber up and have somewhere fun to go after the audition to celebrate because you went to work. I absolutely love that in terms of interacting with people, yeah. losing that sort of social phobia that yes. we all, because we're all in a hurry yeah. and we're like, well, I don't have much time and there's going to be traffic. And now LA is a little more crowded than it right. used to be. So we're even more like dialed in on just going directly 
to where we used to. But like, go somewhere fun, like Trader Joe's, and exactly. pick up something. Yeah, just right. where it's Chat with the guys yeah. or the girls or something. Right. Just make something have, live. You know, do something to get yourself personized again. You know? Right, right. Instead of focused on the job. Let's talk about once you get the job. How should one conduct themselves on set, even if they're just they're just to have a scene where they're going to cross in front of the camera or they have several lines of dialogue? First of all, uh, the crew is, are, is usually comprised of real people who are not full of themselves and are willing <laughs> to share information with you. You know, meet your AD who's going to tell you where the dressing rooms are and be nice to the craft service person and be nice to everyone. But here's one thing that you must know for sure. If someone of the regular cast is nice to you um, and reaches out to you, it will be a rarity. I am amazed at the number of people who have every reason to be kind and open to the guest stars or co-stars who come on the show who won't even give them the time of day. Mm -hmm. And so just don't expect it. Don't expect that. You be nice. Take care of yourself. You be kind. If someone is nice and sweet to you, be nice and sweet back, but don't try to suddenly become their best friend because that's just going to backfire on you in a major way. Yeah. And um, uh, ask questions. Feel free to ask questions if you need to ask questions. But uh, don't expect that you are going to be embraced into the company because it doesn't happen very often. I'm, I'm, unless it's my show, because I make sure that I do that, because I know how difficult it can be to be the day player on a set or the one in for three days or something. And um, I've always made it a point to welcome, I think that's probably the theater thing again, that you know, the pot of chili and the glass of wine concept. Um, but that's what they should do. And be on time, always be on time. Um, it's a good idea to bring a, a magazine or a book and a comfy pillow with you, have a little set bag because you spend a lot of time waiting and you want to be comfortable when you do. And most of the trailers or dressing rooms don't have a comfy pillow or reading material for you to pass the time with, you know. Um, if you have any kind of special dietary needs or uh, prohibitions make take care make sure you take care of yourself in that regard bring your bring a snack or two that fits those things and be prepared to wait and um, and check you know if you feel like you've been waiting a really long time and you're kind of losing the edge check with your ad and and find out if uh, you know how was it likely you know, can you give me an ETA I'd like 15 minutes before you need me, if at all possible. You may not be able to get that 15 minutes, but that's why you say, if at all possible, and you could remember, I'd love to, just so I can pump up, you know, for when it's time to go. And, um, and know your lines, and, uh, and, you know, be prepared to enjoy yourself and do a good job. I like what you said too about you know be friendly but not trying to be someone's best friend right. and then on the flip side knowing that people that oh I can't wait to work with so and so and know that they may not see you and not being hurt perfectly said you know because yes. I think there's like this armor we have to wear and I think you learn it after a few years of being here but when you're new especially you get really it's easy to get hurt yeah. or it's easy to become someone's best friend right away and then find out 
you never hear from them again. Right, right. <laughs> You're shocked. Right. But yeah, can you talk about that armor? And it's not being a mean person, it's just being protective. Yeah, but I also, it's not being a mean person, but I, I you are more generous than I in this regard. I find that it is, that they are not being a conscious person. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't, if you can't say, hello, welcome to the show. Yeah. Nice to have you. Um, now, one of the reasons they may not do that is because when they have done that, the newbie has decided that, oh, now she's my best friend. <laughs> I'm going to talk to her. Right. We're going to have lunch together and everything. And, and that person wants, you know, get off of me. You know, right. I don't, I'm, I'm just, maybe they're protecting themselves because they've done this before and, sure. and it kind of backfired on them in a way that they didn't want to have to deal with. True. However, it is easy to take a moment to welcome someone to your show, to, to be kind to them, to have an, a nice word, because we are all doing it together. Everybody is in the same boat, you know? You have a better seat, perhaps, than I do if you're the regular on the show, but we're in the same boat, and we're all actors and performers. So I find that, I find that sort of treatment. I, I, I was doing an episode of, uh, and so she was, while the makeup lady was doing her makeup, her face was down like this in her cell phone the whole time. She didn't speak to anyone. She didn't say, now she may be a perfectly lovely girl. I worked with her for a week. She seemed very nice on the set. Um, but be, if I use that as an example of how you as a guest star or co-star should be, or any star should be on the show, is that the people that are there, the makeup, the hair, they're not your servants. They are professionals who are doing their job. Treat them with dignity and with respect because they have control over how you look. You're allowed to say, I prefer to have my hair blown forward rather than blown back, or I'd like to have it up if possible, blah, blah, blah. You can tell them what it is you want, but do it as though you are speaking to a professional and say please and thank you and be a conscious human being. Right. You know, don't, they're not your staff. Sure. Can we talk about the best advice you've ever received and what was it? And then on the flip side, of course, leaving names out, the worst advice you ever received and what was it in terms of a career, um, not, not personally on you, mm -hmm. I'm just talking about a career in general in this town, being an artist. The best advice I ever received, I think, was from uh, a man named Arthur Storch who was a Broadway director, he'd won Tonys and whatnot. And before I came to Los Angeles, I thought, you know, I'd been acting since I was very young, and, but I thought, well, I'm about to make the big push now, you know, to, to come to LA. So let me just audition for Arthur Storch if I can. He was a colleague of my mother. She was, she was getting her doctorate at Syracuse University. And um, so I said, well, you know, let me just go to somebody who isn't related to me, who doesn't think I hung the moon, and, and audition for him and have him say, you know, kid, I think you should be taking up arc welding or something. The stage is not for you. So I went to him and I auditioned for him. And he said, you've got what it takes. I think you should give it a try. He said, but give yourself a time limit because, and this is a wonderful line from a fabulous old Hollywood guy named Oscar Levant, because 
Oscar Levant said, you come, he was a New York writer, very well known in, uh, and a musician, and he was he always played this Bing Crosby sidekick or something, or the other wingman or something in those old movies, and very funny guy. And he came to New York to uh, came from New York here to write. And he, uh, and you know, that was kind of considered déclassé to some people, you know, because New York is New York and Hollywood was Hollywood. And so his friend said to him, so Oscar, what do you, how is it out there living in Hollywood? What do you think? Do you like it? He says, oh, it's fabulous. He said, but you have to be careful because, you know, you wake up in the morning, you pluck an orange from the tree outside your window, you have some orange juice, it's fabulous. You do a little work, you know, then you have some coffee. Then you go down to the pool for lunch. You have a little nap after the pool. Then you have a cocktail, you have another little nap, you wake up, you're 80, you know, <laughs> because the time goes so fast here. And so Arthur Storch said, give yourself a time limit. So I was gonna give myself five years. But then I started firing on all cylinders and, you know, I needed to learn patience, but I got reward after reward and then long stretches where I had to do something else, but kept auditioning and kept getting something. And then I got my first series and then I was blessed and rolled into six more television series. And um, but so my time limit kept expanding and expanding. But I think that that is excellent advice for giving yourself a time limit because there are so many people out here trying to make it even more now than when I was here and they keep coming and now there are so many venues to work on you know YouTube and uh, all these other channels Netflix and all these other things that are making business making shows that um, it's easy to to get lost and to keep thinking well and because there is no sense of time passing here you know um, you, it, it is, you wake up, you're 80, and you don't know when, what? I was 18 when I arrived. And um, so if you're not making headway, you know, give yourself a time limit. And if you don't, you can always adjust that and add more to it, of course, as I did, you know, but give, you, give yourself some goals and some, some realistic goals. If I'm able to make a bit of a living and I keep getting out on auditions and I land one every now and then and I, you know, I'm moving forward and my resume is growing at an acceptable rate for my personal taste, then, and you wanna add another couple of years to see what happens, go ahead. But, it, it, but for a lot of people, it's not gonna work out. There isn't room for everybody who wants it. And um, so if you give yourself a time limit, then you're in charge. You know, you're in, you're in control. Uh, okay, I tried it, not for me. Back to Hewlett Packard, <laughs> or back to, <laughs> right. you know, uh -huh. to, the, to the family business or, the, or something else I wanna do, you know? So, and especially now, it, it's become so uh, common to have multiple careers. You know, true. It, when mm -hmm. our parents were growing up and their parents were growing up, you know, you did one thing forever, mostly. You didn't switch. But now it's quite common for people to have several careers in a lifetime. So give the, if you want to give this one a shot, give it a shot, because as we said earlier, no regrets. That's what you want to shoot for in your life. Oh. And could be my agent. It could be, yeah, actually. <laughs> maybe we should get that. Giving yourself a time limit is a, is a good way to be able to try something that you want to try, give it a good shot, 
and then be in control, which always makes you feel better that you are, it's not because Hollywood has rejected you and you can't possibly go on, you know? It's because you've decided that you're in charge of your life and Hollywood is not satisfying your goals or desires. And so you get in your car and you drive it where you want it to go rather than be uh, restricted by what Hollywood is willing to give you, you know? And then leaving out names, worst advice you ever got about the business, about the pursuit, and what was it? And how did you begin to know that it was faulty advice? If, I, if possible. I, I've always kept my own counsel. You know, I haven't really taken advice from a lot of people if it doesn't ring true. I believe that if you feel that something is good, you're correct. And if you feel something is wrong, you're probably right. So I've always had a very finely developed intuition about following my intuition. The only time I haven't followed my intuition, the only times I haven't, have been the times that I was the most disappointed. Um, so I don't really, I can't remember really ever getting bad advice that I didn't recognize as bad advice right away. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, I didn't follow it. Sure. But I do mm -hmm. love that line, you know, what Johnny Carson said up to, what Betty Davis said to Johnny Carson when he said, what would you tell a young actor coming to Hollywood? And her response right. was, take Fountain. Right, right. <laughs> Which anymore is actually very backed up, I have to say. Well, I still find it to be a pretty <laughs> oh, good artery. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah. good, good. Yeah, so, uh, so I, I, gosh, I can't come through for the bad advice thing, but if I think of something after you leave, sure. okay. um, I'll let I'll us know. Let you know. Okay. What makes a great actor? I think a great actor is someone who can feel as they listen. Because a lot of the best moments, I think, happen when you're not talking. Your response to another person is something that can feed them in a way that just having your line when it's your turn to speak doesn't. You know, you can, I can see it happen. It, I, I've been on both sides of the giving and the receiving of that, where you, you have your moment. And what I do, just what my response to you, what my eyes say, what my body says, is I can see the other person going deeper into what it is that they want to say, because they know that they are being heard. And it, is a natural kind of symbiotic thing. A wonderful quote from either Julie Harris, a fantastic actress, or Helen Hayes, another fantastic actress, um, was this. She, there was a, she was doing a play on Broadway and she had to do it night after night after night for months and months and months. And there is a scene in which she comes downstage and sits on a park bench and has a moment and weeps. And someone came up to, and they're talking about the scene and what she's thinking and all that. And the person says to her, 
uh, the interviewer says, how can you cry every night? And she says, how can you not? Because, and that was the end of the quote, was how can you not? But because she was in that moment, she was feeling that feeling. She was hearing those words or feeling that feeling. And how can you not respond to that if you're really hearing? So that's what I think makes a wonderful actor, is being able to um, hear and feel uh, whether you're talking or not. And so being so dialed in to being able to hear something with a fresh perspective or this, you know, night after night to take you to that place, but then also developing the tough skin to not let other things that are in the business bring you down. That, that sounds like an incredible balance. Ah, therein is the rub. <laughs> um, yes, yes, it, it is. It's not an easy thing we do. You know, it's, it's challenging on so many levels because so many other people, you have a job, you have that job. You go to that job, you do that job. You know, we're all, uh, this is one of the reasons why the economic downturn affected me not at all because, you know, actors are always looking for jobs. You know? So it's not, oh my God, I lost my job. And um, because we're always going from one to another. But yes, yeah, you, do have, you have to, you do have to balance that. But you have to protect yourself from the slings and arrows of this silly business, of this capricious business, in order to protect your um, soft, creamy center <laughs> for when you actually need it. It's a great you know? analogy. What was the hardest chapter for you to write? You know, it, it all it just flowed. Once I realized what it was that I was writing at my mother-in-law's table, um, I, uh, hi mom, by the way, if you see this, um, I realized what I was doing was sharing how to live the life. And then I just, it just came because, um, I'll tell you the hardest part of writing the book was getting my ass in the chair. Once I sat down, I could write for hours, but it was, you know, that constant distraction. I had one of my writers on one of my, uh, series said at one point, yeah, the distraction is the, you know, he'd be, he's from New York and he'd sit down and he'd go, oh my God, I cannot possibly work with my shoes laced in this fashion. I must redo these. You know, there was always something to distract you from doing it. So, so that was the hardest part of it. Once I sat down, I just, I could go for hours and it just came because, because I knew what I was writing. You know, I wasn't just sitting down and saying, well, what would I do? I knew what I was doing. Sure. sure. So it was easy to go from one thing to another and, and, uh, and get it done. So where do you think that resistance came from to sitting in the chair? Because you, once it came, it just... I'm still trying to figure that one out because um, uh, I still find this... I, I, as a writer, I get an idea and then it cooks a long time and my brain and then I write. and, and um, But the... I, I'm not sure. I think that it might have been that this is not a separate career for me, but another one of those careers and that we talked about, people ha often have now. And um, I, maybe I have some reluctance about, about embracing this other side of me. My mother always said, write, write, write. You should write. 
you should be a journalist, you should write, you're wonderful. And I think I told you, I don't know if I said it for the record, but I wrote my first novel when I was in, in uh, third grade. It was a novel to me. It was one of those big, do you remember those big tablets, like Red Chief Indian, ta uh, they had a picture of a chief of an Indian tribe, and then they, the, you know, the lines were this far apart, and I wrote with a pencil, and it filled the whole damn thing. And then my father said, hey, honey, you want me to type that up for you? And so he took one piece of typing paper, folded it in half so it looked like a book, and the whole book fit on the, the four sides, that, that one, two, the four sides of the, but I still, I sold it to my class for a nickel a copy. And um, so I, I don't know. I've always kind of uh, put off this facet. I've written a couple of screenplays and I've written a pilot. And, and, um, and the book is the first published thing that I've, that I've actually I've done. Um, but I, maybe it's just some inner reluctance that I need to work on in my meditation, right? To find out so it would manifest in the way that's perfect for me. <laughs> Was there a book that was something that inspired you, that, that you often would turn to, and, and who was the author? Every, or, or? Charles Dickens I loved from the time I was a child. I grew up doing Shakespeare, because you know my parents had a very practical philosophy, if you have children, use them. So, but I had to audition for every job I got from my parents. Yeah, so that sets you up for Hollywood. If your own mother tells you, I'm sorry, we're going another way, you can't very well call your agent to complain. Anyway, I've always wanted to write, and um, I couldn't wait to be able to write. I can remember from the time I was two, I was going um, to my mother, does P-Q-Z spell something? And no, it didn't. And, she, and then I remember the first word I ever spelled, and it was zoo. Oh my God, it was over the moon. I was up for my nap, I was about three, and I was pitching my letters, you know, does Z-O-O spell something? Yes! I was so happy. So uh, I've always loved the written word, other people's words. Uh, you know, I love reading the New Yorker magazine. It's, you know, I had to, I read a nine-page article on baseball. I don't even like baseball. And, but it was so brilliantly written that I just had to keep going. So I, I, I think it's another side. I'm, I'm a Libra, so that, that right. balance, you know. So there's the acting and there's the writing, and I've always done both. But this one has had the most weight for the longest time. And, but I think that it's evening out now because I'm in the process of working on a couple of other projects and, so, uh, and loving it. So I think getting my ass in the chair is going to be a little easier now. I'm not sure, but I hope so. <laughs> also, Libras are teachers. Yeah, that? yeah, that's mm -hmm. true. That yeah. is true, isn't it? And I have that Virgo rising, so that apparently oh. is, is, is teachery too. That's good. Yeah, yeah. meticulous. That's good because they're very good with details and stuff. Anyway, sorry. What are some of the best ways to become a better actor aside from being the perpetual student in these classes that I know are beneficial? Right. But you're right, people can get stuck in that. Right. And there's always also about classes. You want to be careful of the teacher as guru. Like you know, that. you really have to be watchful for that because a lot of times there are many classes in which the teach it's more about the teacher and the students' adulation of that teacher than it is about the students, you know. So um, the way to become a better actor is to act is to get on stage as much as you possibly can and don't let any of this New York versus Los Angeles theater thing dissuade you because I've seen brilliant shows and stinkers 
on big, in big houses and small on both coasts. So you just have to do it. Actors act. If you sit around your house and you get a play reading together with other actors that you know and you just read, and then you celebrate afterwards, right. you do that. You have to do it, you know, because um, not, and interacting with other people is just social interaction with other people. Very important, I think. And being a not self-absorbed person is very important because you learn things from every experience. You know, being out in the world, watching the way people move in the world, listening to the sounds of their voices and the funny little ticks they have and the things they do. It's all about incorporating something real into this fictional moment that you're creating on the stage. And the more reality you can bring to it, the better you'll, you'll be. And here's one thing, a tip that I have found to be invaluable. And I learned this very early on. Um, my mother was also my, my coach because she was a fab. And when I was doing Shakespeare, I was with the Colorado Shakespeare Festival for a few seasons when I was a kid. And um, she was getting her master's there at Boulder. And so um, I had to audition for everything. Uh, you know, she wasn't directing them, but I had to audition for everything. And I had a, I like language, so I had a, 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 a proclivity for verse. And um, so, but there were times when the verse, I didn't, you know, I was nine. And so I didn't quite know, it didn't fit in my mouth quite right. So what I learned was to put in my head the, well, this doesn't work with verse so much, but it helps with interpretation of anything. And in regular language, this really works. If there's a line, that, you, that doesn't fit in your mouth well, you know, rephrase that in your head the way you would say those, that concept and then impose that rhythm onto the sentence that you're given. So, um, uh, I wish I could have a facile example right now, but if it's something as simple as, you know, uh, I want you to go to the store and buy some celery. And, and that doesn't make sense to you. In your head, you go, uh, you know, we need celery. And then you go, I want you to go to the store and buy some celery. So you say it with the music of the rewrite that you put in your head. So you impose the music of the rewrite on the line that doesn't fit in your mouth. And it really works. I like that. Does that make sense yeah, to you? Yeah, it sure does. It sure does, because a lot of times maybe you'll yeah, there'll, yeah, there'll be something that you wouldn't normally say, but if you put it in your voice, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get it. I, I can't really articulate what it is. You put the music of your mm -hmm. voice. Now, you don't put it in your words. Right. You put it in the music that accompanies your words. You know, so you're superimposing the sound of, you know, we could use some celery on. I want you to go to the store and get some celery, instead of I want you to go to the store and get some celery, or whatever, whatever. I, that's a very silly example, but, but it's the concept of the tone right. imposed on the words that don't fit in your mouth. Make the concept fit in your head and then put the music of that over the words that don't fit. Right. So if you say things with maybe an inflection at the end or with a question or something, or maybe you're more, uh, it's more of a directive, whatever way you're normally sort of speaking to someone, let's suppose in that context, right. you, you do it 
and then try to fit that sentence in. Yeah, you put the okay. sound of that sentence over the words that don't fit. Because I'm, every actor has gotten a line that, I would never say this, and this is not, I can't make this real. How do I make this real? So you, you make it, you, you reinterpret that sentence into your own words. And then hear how that sounds in your head and put the sound of that on the words that don't fit. And it, it always, it's always worked for me. And when I've given it as advice to others, they said, you know, I like that. That, that really helps. Because it personalizes it. It's like, it makes it real. Right. Listening to the tones of others and that sort of thing. So listen to your own tones too and have them help you. Right. Advice for people at a large audition. How are you conducting yourself? How are you kind of staying in your own space when you can see all the other actors that, oh, they're going to get it over me, and you're, you're starting to, the tapes are, <sighs> old tapes are going in the head. Yes. How do you stay in your own zone? How do you focus? How do you conduct yourself? For one thing, you, I never try to start a conversation with any other actor. There's an actress that um, I don't see around so much anymore, but I used to see her a lot, and she works. She worked a lot, and I work a lot, and she knows I do. And when we see each other in an audition, could be me, could be her, could be one of the other 10 people if, you're t if we're talking about a big one. But she always starts talking to me. And she's, she's, I mean, she's not a bad person, but we're not friends by any st stretch of the imagination. And I'm not really interested in her life, and I'm sure she's not really interested in mine. But she chats me up. And it's a way of kind of distracting me from what it is that I need to focus on. So the, there's a process. And actors should respect the process. You don't go in chatting away. You don't talk to other actors in full voice. If you have someone that you know that you've seen, that it's nice to see them again, you give them a hug and whatever, and then you give them their space. And, um, and you do not make phone calls. You do not, you know, you don't, you don't make a lot of noise in the room. I always try to find a place um, off you know, walk in the hallway. I like to stay on my feet rather than sit for the most part. Um, uh, sometimes the area in which you're waiting is kind of restrictive, but I always try to find a space of my own. And the, the one thing that is hard to get rid of are the tapes that run in your head that you referred to, you know, that, oh, they're going to get it, oh, this or that. The, you do not know. You, none of us know who's going to get it, or why they got it. Unless it's, you know, oftentimes you get a job because you look the part. You know, if, if somebody, and sometimes it's decided before you even open your mouth in the audition. You walk in the room and three people in the room have said, well, that, no, that's not who I see. You know, you could be brilliant. You could be Meryl Streep in, with your talent level and you just don't look like what it is that somebody has their mind set on. You're not in that family of look. And so you're, you didn't get it, but you didn't get it before you spoke. So it wasn't your work that, you know, it wasn't your audition. It was something else. So you can't, it's very discouraging though, on those days when you walk in for, and everybody's dressed exactly like you are, you know, everybody in the room. And you see people who have done this before, people with more experience than you or less. And, but it, 
it's a the audition is a real mind scrambler for many many actors even very very talented actors Dustin Hoffman there's a famous story about him auditioning for uh, uh, the graduate and um, and that little when when he does the seduction scene with Mrs. Robinson you know that little <laughs> kind of sound that he made was the sound he made in his audition because he was so nervous but it but they liked what he did and they and they used it you know so um and it, it's a auditioning is a very hard thing because because we put everything on it we put all our eggs in that basket and so so it's it's a difficult situation but when you go there in order to make it you just respect the process you let the other actors do their thing. If somebody's talking and you feel like it, ask them to quiet down. Or if you leave the room and you can, that's, that's fine. Um, but I often see a couple of actors just who haven't seen each other in a while and they're just catching up and chatting like they're having coffee. And it messes with everybody else in the room because we're focusing on what it is that we want to do. And, um, We'll make sure we get that done in the room. So it's, again, it's just common courtesy. You used a phrase earlier, which I wish I had used, and I think I did actually use it in the book, the acceptable level of discourtesy that this is so prevalent in this town. And so it's just do unto others as you would do, they did unto you. You know, be quiet. Let them have their space. Don't, don't muck about with it just do your job and then with the cast casting director how are how are you conducting yourself like suppose they're like you know okay Robin next you yeah know, what, and you you come in you slate your name or well I always like to try to ask a question it makes it finds even if you don't really have a question ask a question because it allows you to be yourself and say and what about this moment and they get to see you it, you know, it, it, now here, are you going for, is, is she really, does she mean don't come back again or, or not? You know, ask them something so they see a little bit of who you are naturally. And it breaks the ice in the room a little bit. And you're not just the dancing monkey that comes in <laughs> to do the, to, you know, to behave for them, to perform for them. So you take a little of the space for yourself and do your thing. And then... It's over. Are you thanking them and you turn on your heel and you're out the door? Yes. Okay. Thank no, you. No chit chat? No, no. Uh, if, they, if they start something, I'll say something. Sometimes I say, uh, do you want to see it any other way? And, um, but then uh, who told me? One of my New York agents said to me, don't ask them that. It implies that maybe you didn't do it right the first time. <laughs> so... Um, I have, I, I must admit, I've dialed back on the, do you want to see it any other way? But uh, I still ask the question sometimes, but it's generally, it's thank you very much. And uh, I still do ask sometimes, you sure. want to see anything else you would like to, because I love to get direction. I love it. And listen, as an actor, if you've, if somebody says to you, I want to see it another way and they give you direction, count your lucky stars because that's a fabulous thing. Because if you can show facility for taking direction, if you can change what you did and follow their direction, you've just risen a little peg on their particular peg 
whole <laughs> of, uh, of what you have to offer, you know? Right, because he realized that that's going to be you on set if they choose yes, you. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, and that you can see things another way. And I, I, sometimes I will go in and say, you know, I've made some, they'll, sometimes they say, do you have any questions? And I will, if I, if I am pretty solid on the selections that I've made, I'll say, no, I just want you to know I've made a choice about how it is I'm going to do it. But if you want to see it any other way afterwards, I'm happy to do that. And then I do my thing. And then uh, sometimes they ask to see it another way and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they get the job and sometimes I don't. <laughs> Robin, I know a large focus of today was on film and television, uh, but you do a lot of theater. And I was wondering in terms of your theater career, what's been one of the biggest moments uh, that was the most gratifying? Wow, um, the most sort of magical moment. I've had a lot of, uh, stage is, my favorite. I love film and television, but stage, you get to tell the story from the beginning to the end. You get to do it multiple times, so you're constantly finding new levels and new emotions and new feelings in it. I did a uh, 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 production of Les Liaisons Dangereuses, which I was nominated for an award for, and, I, and it was wonderful. That language is so beautiful. And But one of the most fulfilling theatrical experiences that I've had uh, in the last few years was uh, at the Geffen. Um, and here's how it happened. I was going through the breakdowns. I don't know why they don't let actors have those. You know, it's the one place that we can find work, but don't give it to the people who need it. <laughs> and um, so, uh, so sue me if, I, if you want to. Uh, so I was looking at the breakdowns and the Geffen was casting um, a play, All My Sons. And Arthur Miller's All My Sons. and. I got this feeling in my gut that this had something to do with me. I mean, it was hugely powerful um, that cis, somehow there was a connection here for me. And I then I remembered that I had seen my father perform in All My Sons when I was four years old. And I didn't really remember the play. I just knew that it had to do with betrayal and deception. And, um, and, and I knew that, the, that I was too young to play the mother, I was too old to play the ingenue, and I wasn't character enough to play the next door neighbor, but boy, I felt like this was something. And so I, I mentioned it to my agent, but I just let it go. No, I don't even have mentioned it to my agent. About three days later, I got a call that they wanted me to come to audition for the neighbor. And I said, oh, um, should I dress, you know, frumpily or put on a fat suit or something? What should I do? They said, no, just go as you are. And it was so important to me that I asked Evan if it were at all possible that for him to drive me. So all, so I didn't have to worry about, so I could just work on the words and what I wanted to do. I didn't want to have to park. I didn't want to have to deal with a, with a parking attendant or money or anything like that. I just wanted to be dropped off, go in, do my thing and leave. And I was so. Ha and by the way, any actor, when you have something important like that, and you want that, ask for it. Okay. Now with Uber, I guess anybody can do it. But anyway, so it worked out that way. So I walked in. I did my thing. They asked. To, they said, "Can you make an adjustment here?" I said, "Yes." I made. They asked me for the adjustment. I gave it back to them. Thank you very much. And I left. And the next day, they called, and I got the job. And it was at the moment when we were George Bush was now invading Iraq 
for something that Saudi Arabia had done. And um, we were invading Iraq. And the play, if you're not familiar with it, is about a man who manufactures airplane parts and his partner starts cutting corners and so sends defective airplane parts to the boys that are flying in World War II. And many of the planes were shot down and many men were killed. And one of the people that was killed was jo Joseph Keller's own son. So that hence the name of the play, They Were All My Sons. Now, at the same time that this play was going on, we were invading Iraq and if you recall, there was a big hue and cry that because we were so rushing to battle, we were sending them over without the proper kind of protective equipment that they needed. Do you remember that? Exactly. That there were jeeps that were not undergirded with steel plates and all the IEDs were blowing our men and women up. And it was a bit, and parents were sending parts for the soldiers to put onto their machine, their, you know, a tank, or not tanks, but their vehicles and everything to protect them. So this play could not have been more timely. And so to be in this play, telling this same story that was happening right now, because manufacturers were wanting to sell their war machines, they wanted to get them out there, make that money, you know, we're going to war, let's get that going on. Screw the soldiers who are suffering, which is the same thing that this play was about. So, and with the cosmic consciousness that everyone had, the people who came to the theater, um, it was an awesome experience to be telling this story at the time when it was happening again and for profit and things being covered up and lied about and betrayal and deception. And I would sometimes go out in the audience during rehearsals just to watch the rest because it was so, and the, Neil Patrick Harris played the boy or the, the son, the surviving son, uh, Lou, Len Carew, who's a fabulous actor and is on uh, Blue Bloods, played the father. Laurie Metcalf was the mother. Um, I played the next door neighbor. And, um, and my character is the one who drops the big bombshell, no pun intended, at the end of the play that reveals that we know that he's the one who did this and he was responsible and his son, you know, was a victim of all this too. And, um, and I was happily nominated for that performance as well. But, but the, the powerful thing about it was the doing of it at this moment in time when it was so, so, so poignant and real. And the audiences loved it. We had standing ovations every single performance. The only time that we didn't was a Sunday matinee. And when the lights came up, we discovered that the only people who weren't on their feet, was, it was because they were too old to stand. Oh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> They were yeah. applauding away and loving it too. But to, to have that sort of confluence of art and life at the same moment was hugely powerful and very meaningful to me. And, and uh, I was just, really moved by having the opportunity to have that experience.